chapter 1. We just started uh, last week. Last week we hit the first 38 verses. So this week we'll pick up in verse uh, 39. Just um, give a couple of of things from last week for your, if you weren't here or um, if you're like me, you need to be reminded of things frequently um, where we were at. So Luke writes this book uh, to a man named Theophilus. Um, and to encourage him in his faith so that he can be certain of the things that he's believed in, certain of the things that he's heard. Um, and so that's an encouragement for us as we read the book. It's, it's an encouragement to be certain in the things that you believe in about Jesus Christ. Um, so he begins um, in the book, he just gets to it from the very beginning. He gives a lot of details because um, he is more of a, of a doctor slash historian um, and so he's a very detail-oriented person, and so uh, he, he writes uh, lots of, of wonderful things for us and, and gives us lots of information. And so he begins by talking about a priest named Ze- Zechariah who went in the t- into the temple at that time to burn his incense um, while the people were outside praying. And in there, um, an angel appears to him and tells him that in his old age and in his wife's old age that they are going to have a child, um, that they're going to name him John, and that he's going to do all these amazing things. And uh, Zechariah, maybe we have a little bit of understanding for him, um, that he is uncertain that this is actually going to happen. Uh, and so therefore, the angel says, but you know, it is going to happen, but because you didn't believe my words, you're going to be unable to speak until the child is born. Um, and so he comes out unable to talk and to communicate. Right after that, we uh, looked at um, an angel appearing to Mary, who's a, a young woman. She's engaged, but she's not married. Uh, we know she's a virgin, and she's told, you're going to conceive. You're gonna, um, you found favor in, in God's sight. You're going to conceive. You're going to bear a son. You're going to call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. Uh, and to his kingdom there will be no end. And so that's the, what is said to her. And she responds, you know, first with a little bit of question, but then she responds with this great faith and say, you know, let it be as unto me as you've said. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. But just something really cool, just as, even as you think about the name of Jesus, that the name Jesus means Savior. Name, Jesus means Savior. The name Christ means anointed one. And so, you know, really you have his, you know, in his human purpose in, in the name Jesus, that he is Savior, and then his deity, that he is the anointed one of God um, in the word Christ. So let's pick up in verse 39, and let's read verses 39 um, through 45 for our first section this morning, and uh, to hit a, a couple of points there. But before we do that, let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We thank you for today. We thank you for your love for us, God. Lord, you know we are um, weak and feeble people. Um, Lord, you know that uh, we are prone to sin, that we are 
prone to rebellion against you, God. And um, even in this time, I pray that you would show us yourself, that you would uh, turn our hearts uh, to you and help us to see you as you are, dear God. Thank you for your great love for us that you sent us, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins and to pay the debts that we could not pay. We thank you, Jesus, that the grave could not hold you, but that you are risen and that you are king and that you will return. And until then, help us to grow as your followers. And we ask you this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. So verse 39, he says, Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to the city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. Remember, those are the ones that are, you know, Elizabeth is pregnant with John. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Just really powerful. Um, won't go into it all of it, all of it again, but just you know, last week as we. We talked about you know, even the Holy Spirit coming upon John um, in the womb that uh, there's that importance of, of life, uh, the importance of life from, from the womb to the, to the grave and that uh, we should stand for justice and be a defender um, you know, of life and of, of people being able to, to live a full life here on this earth as God has intended um, and that we should be advocates for that in every case and in every way. And so I uh, just want to encourage our hearts toward that again. But um, really want to look this time at a couple of things here. One is that Elizabeth believed that the baby in Mary's womb was the Lord, that he was the promised Messiah. That's pretty cool. Um, she has that, you know, that faith and that understanding. She's obviously had some pretty wild experiences, <laughs> but... Um, you know, she, she gets that and she understands that this one who is not even born yet is going to be her Lord, her Savior, her King. It's just powerful. Um, and it's also a humility. Because you know, we usually don't think of those, you know, um, who are little being able to do something great for us. But here is um, Elizabeth believing that the one in Mary's womb was her Lord, the promised Messiah. Uh, And then she says in her words to Mary that Mary was blessed by God because she believed the message that the Lord gave her. She was blessed because she believed. And there's an application there, and and it's just consistent throughout the Word of God, that there's a blessing for faith. Um, Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So we understand, yes, you can, you can have all the information, but there still comes a point where you have to take a step of faith. And it's, and it's good to seek out the information. It's good to have, you know, try to have understanding, even as... Luke writes this book so that Theophilus can have understanding and be sure 
yet at the same time, there's still a point of faith, a point of stepping into, you know, I believe, I trust God. And the scripture says that without that, it's impossible to please God. For he comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so many times when I'm talking to somebody and they, you know, are, are struggling with, you know, what do I believe? They don't really know. They know they don't know. And, and that a, that's a, a, can be a really good place to be, someone who knows that they don't know. Let me tell you, that's a much better place to be than the person who, you know, attends a, a church pretty regularly and thinks that they're a follower of God or, think, you know, they call themselves a Christian because they're not anything else. And this is part of their culture and they do that and they think they're okay with God because, you know, they do these things and they're a pretty nice guy. That's actually, a, that's probably the most dangerous place a person can be. Much better to be the person who says, I don't really know what's up. But I want to know. You know, so encourage people, hey, ask God to show you if he's real. Ask God to prove it to you. And have your eyes open. And your ears open. You know, but ask God and look into, you know, read the word and seek diligently because that's a promise of God, that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You might even say, hey, listen, you might not believe in that sort of promise yet, but, but I do, so I'm just going to ask you to, to trust me for a minute and just to pray those prayers with sincerity. Just ask God to show himself to you. Um, amazing how many people have done that in the world and have come to know God as he truly is. So just you know, give that as some encouragement this morning, but it takes faith. And then Mary responds, and let's read verses 46 through um, 56. It says, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, for behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. And he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. And he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Now, before we get into Mary's message, I think it's important that we stop for a minute and just talk about Mary in, in general. And we need to understand that, we, that a biblical balanced perspective is needed when we come to the person of Mary. And let me explain that. Because there are extreme positions. There's an extreme position to venerate her to the point of deity, to make her sinless, to make her even a part of the Trinity. You know, um, when I was in, in college, I had the opportunity to spend a summer in London, and uh, the ministry I was part of there was largely to Muslim people. 
And it was amazing to me how many Muslims that I spoke to who their understanding of the Trinity was God the Father, or you know, the Father, Mary, and Jesus. That's what they thought that the Trinity was. Many of them had that understanding because, well, you know, in, in certain groups, Mary was really elevated to that level. And so that was their, un, that became then their understanding and their misunderstanding of the situation. Um, and so you can see how they would think that that would be wrong, and they're correct that that would be wrong. But that would be a barrier to understanding Jesus as he really is for them. So you have to, you know, unpack that. Um, and I also had an experience there where um, I was on the street and this older um, woman comes up to me, and, and she's a Catholic woman. And um, she, I don't know where it actually came from, but she says to me, like, you know, why do you say it's wrong to, you know, to pray to, to Mary? And I said, well, you know, I would just want you to, to, look, to read your Bible and to read your Bible and see what the Bible says about it. And she says to me, I don't need to read my Bible. I don't need to read the Bible. The priest tells me what to believe, and he tells me to pray to Mary, and I'm going to keep praying to Mary. I don't need to read the Bible. And she was so angry. I thought she was going to punch me. This little, little old lady, she was going to punch me in the face. You know, I was just trying to be calm and just say, okay, but please just read what the Bible says. Because what we see here, uh, you know, and those, well, before I get into that, that's, you know, those are extreme positions. Um, but then, you know, what happens so many times is when there's an extreme position, then the pendulum swings to the other side to another extreme. And that extreme is not to talk about Mary at all. And to just kind of almost ignore her in the scripture as a tremendous woman of faith. And that's also wrong to do. Uh, but there's all, all times, you know, these, there are these overreactions. And so we need to be careful that we don't do that, but we keep a, a biblically balanced you know, perspective on these things. And what we see here is that Mary, in the first couple of verses, we see that Mary herself knows that she needs a Savior. And that's really important because that takes away from that first extreme position of her basically being you know, equal to God. And it says, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. You see that personal you know, deal for her, that God is her Savior, and that she needs one. Why does she need one? Verse 48, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. She knows who she, who she is. She tells the truth about herself, that she's in a lowly place. And really, you know, that's one of the things that's just so necessary, and again, in order to know God, even to come to God in the very first place to believe in Jesus, there has to be that initial telling the truth about oneself. And what is the truth about oneself? I'm a sinner. I've fallen short of God's glory. I've fallen short of God's standards. I've done things that have displeased God. There's nothing that I have that God should look at me and just say, oh, 
you're wonderful, you're good to go, you don't need anything, you don't need anything from me. We're, no, we're all lowly. We have to acknowledge that in comparison to God, where God is, you know, we are in a lowly state. And so that has to be that, that first, you know, telling the truth about one's self. And then he says, she says, you know, she's, she's telling the truth about herself, where she's coming from, but then what's going to happen in the future, behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. Truth. And she is blessed. And it says, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So she acknowledges that God is the one who is powerful, God is the one who is holy, and that he is the one that has done for her. She doesn't start by saying, you know, I've done these great things for God. No, she says, God has done these great things for me, and holy is his name. You know, she acknowledges who God is. Acknowledges his holiness. And then verse 50, um, she, she begins to show how, you know, she takes it from like the personal, what God has done for her, to a, a broader perspective. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. And this is clear from the Old Testament through the New Testament that God gives, you know, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. You find that multiple times in the scriptures that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. You see it, you know, actually written as a principle, but then you also see it time after time after time in practice in individuals' lives that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. But really, pride, I mean, that, that's it's such a big deal there because that's our biggest sin. Because that's the biggest issue. Because really, that's, I mean, when you, when you boil it down, the other sins are usually sourced in that sin of pride. That sin of pride of, I don't, need God, or that sin of pride of the rules don't apply to me, or that sin of pride of, well, you know, I'm better than, or I deserve this, or I can do what I want. You know, all of those things are ultimately have that sin of pride at their root. Even, I mean, there's a sin of pride in people's, you know, spiritual lives who are actually followers of Jesus, a sin of pride that says, you know, I don't really need a church family because, you know, I've just got Jesus and I can walk on my own and I'm good. And that's a sin of pride. That's a sin of pride. Get right down to it. It's what it is. Yes, there can be bad experiences. Yes, people can get burned and different things. But to come to the conclusion that you know, I don't need what God has set up in terms of the church, in terms of church family and community, and I can just do this on my own. Man, there's, there's pride there in those thoughts. And so we need to continue to examine our hearts and our lives, even if we've already come to know Jesus, and to examine where is the pride. 
and try to get that, ask Jesus to take that out of us. Notice this, his mercy is on those who fear him, verse 50. From generation to generation. I realize I hopped over that one and I wanted to go back to it because, you know, with her perspective here, it's not just about her generation and what God is doing there, even though he's doing amazing things there because that's the generation that Jesus enters into in that time. I mean, you know, tough to beat that in terms of generations. And Jesus actually enters the scene. But she has this, again, broader, bigger perspective, even beyond her own time, that God's mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. You know, past, present, future. All right, moving on back down, verse 53. Sorry to hop on you there. Uh, But he has put down the mighty... from their thrones, verse 52, and exalted the lowly. 53, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And I want to take that and unpack that a little bit because I think our first inclination is to think about that strictly in a dollar and cents sort of terms. And I think there is a certain amount of that there because... Again, back to that pride, it's hard for the rich to see that they need God. It's hard for people who have everything, you know, seemingly speaking, in this world to think that then they have some great need, that some great thing is missing from their life when they can just go buy more stuff that will temporarily fill that void. They can buy stuff and they can buy experiences that bring temporary happiness. And so it's hard for them to get to the root of the issue and to see that they need God. It's difficult. It's not impossible, as we see further in the scriptures. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. And so many times they are sent away empty, which is kind of a little bit ironic, right? They just have so much are sent away empty because they don't end up having what they need most, which is Jesus. But he fills the hungry, because the hungry, know, the hungry know that they are inadequate, that they need God. You know, they're, they're, they're hungry in life for something more. And so that's why I want to take this beyond just the, the physical things of, of, of money or, or the lack thereof. But even on the spiritual scene here at this time that Jesus enters into, there are many religious people who, in terms of religious, you know, being religious are quote-unquote rich. And they don't see their need for truly for a savior because they have all their traditions and they have all their rituals and they have all their sacrifices and their ceremonies. And what more do they need? And they've got their words, they've got the law. And what more do they need? And they're content with all of that. And so ultimately, they are sent away empty. But those who are hungry for a spiritual reality, those who are hungry for something deeper and something more than just the external things, those will be filled. And then moving on, he says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed 
forever. There we see God, you know, Mary talking about God keeping his promises, God keeping the promise that he made to Abraham. And, you know, in that promise to Abraham was, you know, Abraham's seed. Genesis twenty two eighteen says, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, even as we see here, you know, Jesus comes into Israel and he comes in as a Jewish man. And salvation is for the Jew first and also for the Gentile, as it talks about in Romans 1.16. But it is for all nations and for all people. And so you see Mary making this connection that, her, you know, the one she is about to give birth to, that she's going to give birth to, is the promised seed, the promise that was made to Abraham being fulfilled in her. That's pretty awesome. And so a question I have for you this morning, have you thought about Mary's faith being on par with the faith of Abraham? Because we talk about Abraham being a man of great faith because he was called out from his people and called out from his nation and he was called out to go to a land that he didn't know and just start this new thing. And so it took a lot of faith to step out into the unknown but, and, it, and there's a lot of risk there. But what about Mary? When she's told, hey, you found favor in God's sight and you're going to go through this situation. I mean, imagine what the other people are saying as she is then pregnant and begins to show that she has a child and yet she's not married, especially in this, the cultural context of this time. Here today, not as big of an issue, still an issue, but not looked at quite, this, you know, quite the same way. Perhaps more grace, you know, today, and in that particular issue, not necessarily want to say more grace overall, but just in this in that particular issue, that she steps out into the unknown, that she takes great risk, and that she responds in faith. And I think it's safe to say that Mary's faith is on par with the faith of Abraham. And you see, that's what we miss if we take that overreaction and say, well, we don't want to be identified with those who, you know, venerate Mary to the point of deity and, you know, pray for her, to her and do those sort of things that shouldn't be done. So therefore, we're going to kind of just not talk about her. And we miss her great faith. That is an example for all of us, both female and male. I mean, if somebody says to you, you have faith like Mary, wow. <laughs> That'd be pretty powerful. That's, that's serious faith. Very serious faith. All right, let's um, move forward here and finish this up. Verse 57. It says... Um, now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And when neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have, they, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. But his mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. 
So they made signs to his father that what he would have called him, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, his name is John. So they all marveled. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. And that's kind of cool. And I think because, you know, Zacharias was, you know, a priest and worked, you know, in the temple, that the people there that worked there were a little extra uh, particular and concerned about, you know, this child and what his name is going to be and all these things and that everything is done in a way that Zacharias would want it done because he's their buddy, you know, sort of deal. He's their friend. But, you know, and they're just shocked that, you know, he's going to have this different name. But remember, that's the name from last week that the angel said you're going you're gonna to name him John. And what, is that, what does that name mean? You know, basically, you know, the Greek Jehovah is gracious from the Hebrew Yahweh is gracious. That God is gracious is what the name John means. And so he's going to be a symbol of God's grace. But what's really interesting at it, as we see, when you look at the messages that John gives, his messages are like, you know, the axe is coming for the roots of the tree. Like, God's going to chop this nation down, is his message of, like, to get the people's attention for repentance so that they might have God's grace. But it's interesting that his name means grace, and his messages we would consider a little bit more like, you know, hellfire and brimstone. Kind of interesting, you know, with that. But they actually, it kind of works together. Because it is God's grace that's available, but sometimes for people to understand God's grace, they have to understand the consequences of not experiencing God's grace. Because there's not just God's grace, there's also God's justice. And people really have to decide between the two of those things. Whether they want God's justice or they want God's grace. And in the end, all of it is made right because of Jesus and the cross. And that's where we see grace and justice fully displayed. So, God is gracious. 67 through 80, and I know it's a lot, but hang with me for these last five minutes here. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, 
with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel, or the day he was made known to Israel, his public ministry. So it's kind of interesting that when Zechariah begins this prophecy as he's filled with the Holy Spirit, that verses 68 through 75 are all about what God has done. And, that's all, I mean, and that should always be the beginning. That's where we always start. What God has done. You know, that God has created, that God has fulfilled his promises, that God has sent redemption for us, that God has given us Jesus, that you know, God's grace and salvation are abundant. It's all, you know, we should always be starting with, God, you have done all this, and then what is our, therefore, what is our responsibility and our response of faith toward what God has done? It doesn't start with us. It starts with God. And then we respond to what God has done. And we just have to, I mean, because so much of what's given out there today, it is, it's about us, it's about you, and then God is this helper that helps you fulfill your dreams. So God is your helper. I mean, and he is our helper. I mean, the scripture even says that, right? But I'm talking about in terms of perspective, in terms of how we view our lives. That many, what we're told to do is to live his way in such a lives is that we set the agenda and then we ask God to help us fulfill our agenda. And if we're really spiritual, then we'll try to make it so that our agenda, you know, pleases God. As opposed to saying, God, okay, here's your agenda. How can I be a part of your agenda? Really, mission. God, here's your mission. Here's your purpose. Here's what you're about. Now, how do you want me to participate and to help with that? Because you are here and I'm way, 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 way down there. You're high and mighty. And I'm not. But what do you want my response to be to what you have done and what you are doing and what you will do? And so when you notice what he tells John, his child, you child will be called the prophet of the highest. You will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death and to guide our feet in the way of peace. Notice what John is supposed to do to give knowledge of salvation. To give knowledge of salvation. He's supposed to talk about the remission of sins of the tender mercy of God. And he's supposed to give light. He's to give knowledge and he's to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. And do we view people without Jesus that way? Do we view them as sitting in darkness and under the shadow of death? Because that is a very serious perspective. You know, we don't have this perspective that, oh, you know, this person's a 
you know, a really nice guy or a really nice lady, you know, and if they just had Jesus, it'd be even better. That's how we think a lot of times. And it is true, a person may be very nice, we may like them a lot. But we need to take it a step further than that and understand that person is sitting in darkness and is under the shadow of death. That we should view them as sitting there with an angel of death, with a sickle, shadow cast over them, ready to take them out. Like that's where they really are. But those sort of thoughts cause us to be more responsible and to have to do more in terms of prayer and sharing. And, and that causes us to be in uncomfortable situations where it's easier just to say, well, you know, they're a good person. It'd be nice if this was just added to their life. That'd be so much better. And then that pressure on us doesn't feel so much, or that, I didn't say pressure, the burden of it doesn't seem so much, because, you know, still a nice person. When we view the person as under the shadow of death, and that they're in a grave situation, because people are dying at all different ages, all the time, everywhere in the world. And when we think about it that way, that we don't know how long this person has, and they are literally under the shadow of death, then that causes us to go to our knees and to beg God to work in that person's life. But we can... We can make it so we don't need to do that. Just by softening it. And not really telling the whole truth about it, just telling part of the truth about it. Because, yeah, a person's life would be a lot nicer with Jesus. They're part of the truth. So what do we do with this this morning? What do we do in response to God's provision of salvation that we see here? Well, perhaps you're here this morning and you haven't taken that step of faith yet and you need to believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose from the dead, that he gives life and life eternal to those who ask him for it. And you just need to say, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner, I believe in you. And it's really that simple. And to acknowledge you can't save yourself and there's nothing you can add to what Jesus has done. But you just have to receive the gift. Maybe that's where you are this morning. But for many of us, you know, we've, we've, we've done that. And we're thankful that we've done that. We know God has changed our lives. But then the question is, how are we preparing God's ways? How are we preparing you know, the hearts of other people for the Lord, similar to what John was called to do? And, and yes, I'm not saying you're called to be John the Baptist. I'm not saying you're called to go and live in the wilderness for a number of years or whatever and put on camel hair and eat locusts and honey. But at your place of work and in your classes and on the ball field and whatever it is that you do, there are people around you. And through how you live your life, 
in actions and in words are the people around you are is the way for Jesus being prepared in their lives. And then the last thing he says, um, verse 79, then verse 79, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Because there's, you know, leading people to Jesus and then there's walking with Jesus. The way of peace, to walk with the Lord. That's the discipleship that we're called to do. We're not called just to see people make a profession of faith. So that's the first, like, if it's true and genuine, that's the first big necessary step. But then we're called to walk with people and to help people to grow in their faith. And that's what we want to see more and more of, is people becoming full, mature disciples of Jesus Christ who are then making more disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. That's our purpose. And so let's be about that. This morning we have the opportunity to take the bread and the cup that represent the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It reminds us of the sacrifice that he made when he went to the cross to purchase our salvation. Both the physical, the emotional, the spiritual, taking on the sins of the world, on him, everything that he endured in that time for us, and we remember him and we give thanks, as Jesus asked us to do. It's a sign of obedience. And so we take that and we give thanks, but before we take it, the scripture says to examine our hearts. And we need to do that. First question, you know, that uh, some need to ask is, do I really believe in Jesus? Do I really know him? Because you, you can't remember someone you don't know. You can't remember someone you haven't met. And so you need to know him and know that you know him. But then once you know him, ask him to examine your heart, confess your sins, and take it. You know, that's the order of things. Um, to acknowledge and, and to ask him to grow us and to teach us and to work in us. And that in this time we would worship him in spirit and in truth as he really is. And so there's a few things that are appropriate in this time. They're good for this time. And, you know, we, we have open participation um, in our church. And when we take the bread and we take the cup, um, we believe the Holy Spirit work, can work through any of us who are believers in Jesus. And so it's appropriate to request a song, to pray, to share testimony, to read scripture, um, to give a few words about the meaning of that scripture in your life and how it relates to this. But there's kind of two um, questions that you need to that really three questions. One, am I being led by the Spirit to share? One. Is this from the Spirit or just what I want? Two, does it point us to Jesus? Because this is time for Jesus and it's about Jesus. So if it doesn't point us to Jesus, it might be good, but it's good for another time, not for this time. And three, does it edify the whole body? Does it, does it give encouragement and point us all to Jesus? You know, so, and if not, it may be a good thing, but it's a good thing for another time. You know, we have, you, know, you may have a, a relative who's sick. Usually, we don't talk about that in this time. We have other times you know, that are for that. 
Because we could spend, you know, we could go through each of our personal prayer requests and give all of our personal prayer requests and take up our whole time doing that. And that wouldn't be wrong. It's just that that's for a different time. And this time is for Jesus and to take the time to worship and acknowledge. And we even see that, you know, as we looked at the, the prayers of Mary and the prophecies of Zechariah, where do they start first? It's all about God and what he's done. You know, then there's other stuff that comes into play. And so I just want to encourage you uh, with that this morning and um, pray that the Lord would lead and we'd have a sweet time together with that for a little, little bit. Um, so let's pray and the musicians will come back up as well. Heavenly Father, we just love you and praise you. We thank you for your word and for the truth that is in it and that every bit of your scripture is, is good and useful and, and profitable for our lives. And um, Lord, thank you for the privilege to look at the faith of Elizabeth and Zechariah and, and Mary uh, this morning. And Lord, let us learn from their um, examples. Um, see your greatness, God. Lord, help us to have that right perspective. that it's all about what you've done. And then we ask the question how you want us to participate in it with you. Lord, we thank you that you're not just a one that grants wishes. But that you are a king with a kingdom. And you are the almighty and the all-powerful. To help us to humble our hearts before you this morning, God. Jesus, help us to remember and give thanks for what you did for us at the cross. And help us to consider those in our lives who are still under the shadow of death that we might live with purpose. For your glory and for your honor. Jesus, we ask you to say,